Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WAB in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In the past several months of our reckoning with racial injustice, much has been said about a greater need for accountability. The Alliance Theatre has been responsive. Today, we'll hear about Hands Up, Art, and activism, a new digital series from the Alliance on how theater can help bring about social change. When we might gather again safely in person for theater and music is our first topic. Our nation's largest performing arts organization, the Metropolitan Opera recently announced that the opera will not reopen for another year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. To understand what that means for live performance here in Atlanta, we turn to one of the world's foremost experts in the area of infectious diseases, Dr. Carlos Del Rio chairs the Department of Global Health at the Rollins School of Public Health and professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine. He is also an ardent music lover and art supporter here in Atlanta. Dr. Del Rio, welcome to City Lights. I am so happy to be with you. Good morning. When the Met announced the cancellation of its entire 2020-2021 season, the decision reverberated far beyond New York City. What was your reaction? Well, you know, it's sad. It's something to me, you know, it's particularly relevant because last January, I I went to the Met to to see uh, Porgy and Bess. It was uh, January the 18th, and we were at the Met, and it was just such an incredible performance. And my daughter lives in New York, so, you know, to me, you know, every time I go, I try to go to the Met and and watch one of the productions there, which are just unbelievable. But it's not surprising what the Met is is saying. Uh, I mean, I think that what we've learned in this virus is that there's some very high-risk activities, and one of them is actually 
uh, singing. And singing leads to a lot of transmission of the virus. And that produces aerosols that could potentially infect many others. So I think the, the Met is cautious and is you know, doing what they need to do, but obviously have a, a virtual platform. And to me, that has been really interesting to see how many orchestras, including our own uh, Atlanta Symphony, has gone to a virtual stage. And the virtual stage has become a way that, that we now uh, see concerts and, and watch concerts. Mm. The Atlanta Opera will perform its fall season in an outdoor tent. I know you advise them of feasibility and safety protocols for the audience as well as for the singers and musicians. Beyond opera and classical music, we have concert venues for rock and all types of music comedy clubs, dance, and a wonderful theater community here in Atlanta. Do you believe that any indoor performance is safe for gathering? Uh, unfortunately, at this point in time, uh, Lewis, I, I don't. I think that we cannot have at this point in time in, where we are in the, in the pandemic indoor performances. Uh, we know that, that crowded environments closed environments, poor circulation environments is where you can have uh, a lot of transmission. You know, the Atlanta Opera has been a, a very interesting engagement that I've done in, in advising them. And what they're doing by setting up a tent, by putting people in pods that are, you know, apart from each other in tables that you cannot come out from, that what they're doing for the song singers, putting plexiglass around them, what they're doing for chorus, which is all going to be uh, streamed in, not live. I mean, they're going out of the way to really ensure safety of the musicians and the public. And I'm really looking forward to go hear Pagliacci. It's one of my, my favorite operas. And it's also uh, an opportunity to show that we can adapt, right? We can, we can, we can see, we can do things we, rather than waiting for the normal of the past to return. We have to adapt to this environment and be creative. And I think creativity in the arts has existed always. And why not now creativity? How do we do the arts? Yeah, it is quite amazing. Tomer Zvulun, the, the artistic director for the Atlanta Opera, said that you headed up the task force on safety for returning to Atlanta Opera performances, and he said his guidelines consisted of 37 pages to get to where they are in constructing the tent and it, taking all of the safety protocols they are for this season. Not all organizations have the resources and so I guess virtual is the way to go. But you, you do raise an important point about creativity kicking in. I know Susan Booth is very excited about the Alliance doing a Christmas carol as a drive-in movie-type experience, a live performance inside of sound booths. They're doing it as an old-fashioned radio show. 
again, we have to we have to live by creativity and 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 embrace it, right? Now, I would say to you that to me, I was I was preparing for our chat this morning. I was reflecting and I was thinking, you know, I'll tell you a story. I had been in DC. I had been very close and following what was going on in the in pandemic. This was back in early March, and on on March the 11th, we had a board meeting of the Atlanta Symphony and. Uh, I decided to go up to the podium uh, near the end of this of the board meeting and, and tell the board and the musicians that were there that that this was serious, that we were facing a very serious pandemic, and that we we're going to have to do uh, something very quickly. But that evening we had a concert. We had Joel Levy here. We were supposed to have Isaac Perlman, but Isaac Perlman actually couldn't come because of the pandemic in New York. So pinch a Zuckerman, sort of pinch hit. And that was the last concert, live concert that I attended at Symphony Hall. It's fascinating that they played, you know, La Forza del Destino, which, as you know, it's a, it's a piece that many people feel is cursed, right? And I wonder if it meant something that Forza del Destino was the, the overture was played that day. But I was also very pleased because we, you know, we've been working with the symphony, with the musicians, really, you know, first of all, explaining the situation, why we had to stop then really moving into, you know, re, reformatting, reimagining the, the Atlanta Symphony and setting up the, the virtual stage and doing all the safety protocols with them. And I was so pleased that uh, early this week, I had a text from, uh, from Robert Spano who says, it's an absolute joy to be back together. So glad that we were finally able to rehearse, to play in person. And even though public was not here, we will still be able to scream the opening night of the Atlanta Symphony for the 2021 season. And, you know, it was, and playing, playing Jupiter that night, it, it was just so beautiful. And having, you know, having that opportunity to hear that Atlanta Symphony again play, again, reminds me that we can do this, that it is possible to make it. Yeah, what you mentioned about the symphony and the evening of that final concert, of the last season on March 11th, already they were pivoting with projecting the concert outdoors on the plaza. So already your words had clearly made an impression, your advice about this is something very real and dangerous we face, they took to heart. And indeed, the symphony gathering together to perform safely in Symphony Hall without an audience minimally gives us the reassurance that this is live music and this can continue with safe social distancing, with the proper safety precautions. I know you wondered about the possible uh, curse of performing La Forza del Destino, the power of destiny. It's heartening to know that even such a revered scientist as yourself still wonders about the mystery of things such as tempting fate with music and art. My, my father used to say, I don't believe in witches, but they, that they exist, they exist. <laughs> <laughs> Museums and art galleries have much greater opportunity for 
controlling the number of people admitted and distancing them properly inside. With that in mind, is museum going still risky? You know, I think you can go to a museum in, in, a, in an effective way. I really think that that you can, you know, wear a mask, that they can space people out, that they can have the social distancing require you're moving. It's very different than sitting at, in, in, for long hours inside a concert hall or inside a theater. So I think museums are slowly opening. The high art museum has opened. And I, I think that museums and galleries uh, will be able to are going to be able to host uh, the public, you know, in a very, in a different way. Again, we need to remind ourselves that this is not just all or none. It's it's what can we do now? And I want to emphasize this, that creativity in what we do. And really, I've been, I've been so impressed about how organizations like the Symphony, like, you know, the Woodruff Forest Center, you know, the Pyre Museum, the Atlanta Opera, they're all figuring out how to reimagine themselves, how to how to adjust and how to continue bringing what we all want, which is, which is arts, which is culture, which is classical music, which is opportunities to continue enjoying those wonderful parts of life. Music, theater, live performance nurtures us and gathering together as a community is part of that nurturing process as we receive and revel in live performance. What must happen? What conditions must be in place for us to return safely to live performances? Well, you know, the first thing is I think we need to have the epidemic under control. And what I mean by that is that we need to have less than five cases ideally probably around one, let's say less than five cases per 100,000 population. So controlling the local community transmission, I think is gonna be very important. The second one is for a while, we're gonna to continue to have, uh, we're gonna to need to have a very uh, strict way in which we think about who can go, who cannot go, what can we do? You know, right now, for example, we're doing right, quite well here in Atlanta. We're down to uh, eight cases per 100,000 population in Fulton County, and we're down to 8.8 per 100,000 populations in DeKalb County. So getting down to five and under, I think is possible, but we're still gonna have to continue. I mean, once we get down there and we sustain there for two weeks, and clearly we have this under control, then I think you can start thinking about having people come in. Maybe, you know, we talked to Jennifer, and others of the symphony, maybe about maybe half the number of people that can go. How do you deal with, with people still wearing masks? I mean, I think you're gonna to get to that point that we're gonna be able to start slowly having people come back into, into concert halls and do it safely. We just need to do it under safety protocols. So you think it might be safe to gather before a huge percentage of the nation is vaccinated? Because for that, we're talking years, aren't we? Well, we're talking at least at least another year. I mean, I think that by this time next year, I tell people that by Christmas of next year, we will be in a much better place because we'll have a, a large percentage of the population vaccinated and we will be where we, where we need to be. But, but if we can keep the epidemic under control, and again, I think we in Georgia 
And here in Atlanta, we're doing a nice job. We're doing a good job. And I want to encourage people to continue doing that because, you know, not too long ago, you know, in July, we were having 30 cases per 100,000 population. We're down now to eight. We're now where we need to be. Ideally, once we get down to below five and, you know, we get below one, we're going to be in a much better place. So opening things like public gatherings, like music halls, is depending on controlling the local epidemic. And controlling the local epidemic is something that we all are a part of. We all can contribute. We all can make it happen. By wearing masks. By wearing masks, by socially distancing, and by by staying home when sick. You know, we really need to make sure that if somebody has symptoms, they get tested, they get isolated, and they prevent the chains of transmission. Well, let me tell you one more thing, and I think you'll find this fascinating. Uh, Every Friday since early March, I've been doing a weekly coronavirus town hall. When I started doing this, it was initially about giving information, but then I realized very early on, uh, talking to to Danny Loeffler at the symphony, that it would be really nice to have the musicians play something for healthcare workers. And, uh, And on April 3rd, we had a beautiful performance by the Atlanta Symphony. And since then, you know, I have had uh, Robert McDuffie, uh, Will Ransom, uh, Mike and Liz Descone, uh, Ryan Speedogreen, you know, Jamie Barton, the National Symphony Orchestra of Mexico play for us. And those musical moments at the end of those town hall meetings have been incredibly important. And many people tell me how relaxing they've been. And when healthcare workers are so stressed and so this is very tough when you see so many sick people, people dying, you don't have much to do for them. Music has been medicine for the soul of, of our healthcare workers. And I, 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 I have been a big believer in this link between medicine and music and how we, we can really use music for healing. And at, at a time like this, I think music really brings a, a level of comfort that we all need. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, is professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine. He also chairs Emory's Department of Global Health in the Rollins School of Public Health. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This weekend marks the observance of the United Nations International Day of the Girl. Two local events will feature an extraordinary girl from Marietta. Isha Upalapati is a senior at Walton High School who has written a book about female empowerment 
and founded a nonprofit organization, A Girl's Frontier. She joins us now via Zoom. Isha, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. Now, many students your age struggle over writing term papers. And here you've published a 42-page book called Her Toolbox. What inspired you to write this book? Well, it was actually one of my mentors, and it was her advice that I was so empowered and I was so guided by that I realized that I could take that the advice that I was being given by the mentors that I'm blessed to have in my life and share it with people around me and just girls all over the world. Hmm. Now, the book is about learning to be a female leader with advice from women in power. How did you select the women you wanted to interview? A lot of them, I... I had spent time researching and I saw what they stood for and the work that they've done, the paths they've overcome and their incredible, incredible accomplishments. And I just reached out to them and they were gracious enough to give me their time and put so much energy into this project that I was starting. Was diversity a factor in your selection, not only in cultural background, but in occupations as well? Yes, it actually definitely was. And I did actually end up getting a variety of occupations for the woman that I interviewed. And I felt that was so important to me because each industry has different boundaries and different barriers that these women have overcome. And they are all different situations. And I wanted to be able to have as diverse of an advice as I could. And that's why I really wanted to make sure I had a diverse occupation and just a diverse set of women in general. What are some of those occupations? Some of the women I interviewed were lawyers. One of them was the assistant general counsel at Home Depot. She is. There's one who's a healthcare lawyer. At, she's a partner at one of the largest health law firms. And we have a VP at Goldman Sachs. There was healthcare management professionals and women who've been through lots of different occupations too and had advice from all of them. So what were the main questions you asked each leader? In my interviews, I like to keep it more conversational and we took it wherever the conversation led us. But there were a few questions that I very specifically wanted to ask each woman. Uh, One of those was, if you could give one piece of advice to young girls, what would that be? Because that is the whole theme of what my book was about, of what advice you can give to young girls to help them become a leader. And what was the most common response when you asked for that advice? I did get um, actually diverse opinions, but it was always had to do with work hard. You will never get anything handed to you. You have to work hard for everything you want. You have to be in the driver's seat of your life, be in charge, surround yourself by people that you know will support you 
and that you can learn from too. Yeah, it was absolutely incredible all the advice they had they have given me and the ability that I have now to share it with other people. Hmm. Uh, one bit of advice you got from Jill Rowley, a limited partner and fund advisor at Stage 2 Capital, it is you do not get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. How can this book be a blueprint for aspiring young women? It's a foundation for young women to take these pieces of advice and to incorporate it into their lives as they move through their careers. And see this, that specific piece of advice, it can be incredibly helpful, whether talking in an education sense, when talking to a professor or talking to classmates that you're working on a project with, or if you're in a job interview and you're trying to negotiate a price of salary, or if you're a sales rep and you're trying to negotiate there, there's just so many different situations that piece of advice can be applicable to. And that's the same with the rest of the book. All the advice is applicable to so many different situations that by starting incorporating that advice at a young age for all these young girls, they'll be able to go extremely far. I can't help but wonder, Isha, at your age, in your situation, many girls are thinking about college or now with the pandemic, many students are just wondering what life will be after you graduate. Why did you want to write this book now? Well, the whole thing is I did have more time this summer um, because of the pandemic, because of the situation we are in. I had the time to think and to reflect on the, the blessings that I have been given. And that is kind of one of the reasons that I took up this endeavor during this time. But just like every other girl my age, I still do talk, think about college or think about what's going to happen after. But, you know, I have 24 hours in a day and I can spend time doing all of it, I guess. <laughs> well, one of the things you did with your days was to found a nonprofit organization. What can you tell us about A Girl's Frontier? So at A Girl's Frontier, we have multiple programs to help young girls become leaders and to develop those leadership skills. So especially with the pandemic going on right now, a lot of girls have limited resources. So we are doing book and iPad drives along with Destiny's Daughters of Promise and Must Ministries to help distribute these supplies to young girls who need it. And we, are, we have a mentorship matching program where we connect mentors with younger girls so they can have someone to help guide them. And also we help sponsor education to girls around the world as we're currently working with a group at Casa de Abbey of girls in Honduras and helping sponsor their education. This is so impressive. How long did it take you to put a girl's frontier together? Well, it's definitely something that's been brewing in my head for a very long time. 
at least the beginning of high school, if not earlier. And I founded it in 2018. And ever since then, I've, I've really been working with a bunch of really, really great people. And everyone that I have met has been so incredibly helpful and passionate about what I'm doing as well. And every one of the girls that I have met through my nonprofit are an inspiration to myself and the reason I do what I do. On Sunday, in honor of the International Day of the Girl, you will be hosting a Q&A with the women leaders featured in the book. What kind of topics will you be talking about? We're going to be talking about a lot of the topics that were present in the book, talking about overcoming adversity and the importance of hard work and the truth that is that everyone will make mistakes and everyone will fail. And hearing those life stories and that advice from the woman themselves who experienced them and who have a lifetime's worth of advice to give us is really what we're going to be focusing on. Isha Upalapati is the author of her toolbox, Learning to be a Female Leader with Advice from Women in Power. She also founded the nonprofit A Girl's Frontier. In honor of the International Day of the Girl on Sunday, Isha will host a live online Q&A at 4.30 p.m., more information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. As part of a response to our reckoning with racial injustice, the Alliance Theater will host a digital series of conversations and performances exploring the role of artistic expression as an activist tool. The series is called Hands Up Atlanta, Art and Activism. Here to tell us more about this dynamic initiative are Rita Kumpelmacher, audience development and community engagement manager, and Davier Snipes, the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Engagement for the Alliance. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Total pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. So how did the Alliance conceive of the idea for Hands Up Atlanta? Well, this program, series of artistic provocations and conversations, comes from the decision of the Alliance to um, put into their main program, into the main season, a, a play called Hands Up, Seven Playwrights, Seven Testaments, um, which is written by seven different playwrights. Um, it was written in the wake of the shooting of Michael Brown, 2014, um, and we are reimagining it for 2020, at this point for 2021, um, as a full production um, at the Alliance Theater. That play was supposed to be slated for the fall, but with our current COVID situation and, and the inability to really kind of give it due justice um, as a full production, we, we moved that production to the spring and are instead doing a series of artistic 
conversations and presentations because the the conversation that surrounds this play, um, that of um, police brutality, the impact of police brutality on the black community was really relevant and topical and important to discuss at, in the fall moment that we had initially wanted to discuss all of these issues. For this series, you have done a lot of work partnering with local artists, activists, and community organizations. I'm wondering about how you coordinated these events. What went into that process? Well, I really think we can speak about it from two angles, actually, because I know it was a connection to the community and, and being artists through the Woodruff uh, Art Center, uh, employees of the Woodruff Art Center, but also just artists in the community, myself being an actor, uh, in addition to my position there, you work with artists who you learn have so social activist uh, missions and they do other works that are all about pushing forward social uh, progress. And so when we do an event like this, those are the people that come to your mind as first, like those artists who you know already have uh, a place in that space where they're already doing that work. So you know that, okay, so this person here I know is working with LGBTQ issues. I know this person over here is using theater in regards to uh, making theater more accessible to underserved community youths. So I want to make sure that person's voice is heard in this conversation. So it starts with your own network and it starts with the community groups that you know who that we've been outreaching with through previous show partnerships have been doing extensive work in this area. So you start there and then it kind of becomes a ripple effect with who you get connected to. And, and, and that is our starting point for that. How long did it take you to put this series together? Um, we've been working on it probably since, I want to say end of July, August, a lot of the work was, happened during August um, and certainly in September. Um, it happened quite quickly though, um, you would be surprised. And I think that's the nature of this kind of programming. It's really responsive. Um, we did not plan to do this a year ago and it really responded to the current situation, to the Black Lives Matter movement, to the calls for more racial justice and equity in our community and in our theater. Um, so it happened quite quickly, um, as it should, in order to really address topical and current reality. Would you talk about the format the series will take? Um, the format of the series will be five um, different events. Four of them are uh, will happen on every Thursday at 7 p.m. And one is a family program that we're really excited about. It'll happen on Sunday, October 25th at 3 p.m. And that's um, a family-oriented program that will be a reading of Hands Up, a kid's book. So not, not the play that we're talking about. There's a kid's book um, also exploring the role of, a, of youth in figuring out their voice um, in the current reality. But that will be um, a slightly different kind of program. The next conversation to take place is Black LGBTQ narratives. Would you talk a bit about the short film that you will screen for the event, Holes in My Identity. 
Holes in My Identity was written by a playwright, Nathan Youngerberg, Brooklyn-based uh, playwright, who is, it's, it's, an in, it's a monologue and exploration of his own um, intersections, identity intersections, being both um, a, a gay male um, and also Black, and feeling that in some ways uh, he had to, I would say, choose at times or feel like he had to choose between being um, an activist or a part of the LGBTQIA community or a part of the Black community. So he, the holes in my identity is, is really the, the exploration of the different parts of your identity and the kind of um, missing pieces that sometimes happen when you feel like you have to choose um, between different communities to, to be a part of. Uh, so that that's the inspiration of of that event, um, which then gathers together an artist, a group of artists and activists who are talking about um, specifically that intersection between um, the, the LGBTQ rights movement and Black Lives Matter. Davier, who are some of those speakers that will be on the panel? Yes. So for that panel, exactly. That was that was pretty personal for me because social justice is very important to the work I do in the theater. So through that, I've gotten the opportunity to work with several actors who do work specifically in LGBTQ areas. And, and there were some people that I personally invited to speak on this, knowing what their body of work is and knowing what their mission is. And one of them is Trevor Perry, a local Atlanta actor, uh, who is very much focused on working outside of the binary between not just being seen as how I present, but being able to work in a non-binary uh, perspective in regards to his theatrical presentation. Uh, and also uh, Thandi Thomas de Cesar, who is an actor I've worked with twice, who uh, writes, directs, produces, and all, and acts with it, and focuses on stories again and about the the black gay male uh, progression in our society and the trials and tribulations that are often faced. Uh, it will be led, uh, this panel will be mod moderated by our, one of our advisory board members, Charles Stevens, who actually is a founder of the Counter Narrative Project, uh, who is a sponsor of, of Hands Up. And to have Charles's voice as the moderator for that is very important to us and personal because one, it builds on the connection of the theater with community activist groups and, and in regards to moving forward uh, social progress and social activism, but also as for an organization like that to be able to be represented uh, in conjunction with the Alliance for this production, I think is a powerful message on how an example of how community and theater truly can work and and symbiosis to for a greater good, or to move or, or to move a, a progressive thought uh, into our society. Because a lot of times people ask, well, how does that happen? How does that change occur? How can theater make social change? real and I think the, these these conversations particularly in this subject is an example of how that's done. The series culminates with standing up for racial justice which will feature another impressive panel of speakers. How did you decide who would be on that panel? 
Well, I will speak personally to that because I'm a member of one of those organizations, which is IDEA ATL. And IDEA ATL personally focuses on educational opportunities in regards to provide bringing equity into the theater. Uh, so we will focus on things such as representation and leadership, creating uh, anti-bias work zones in theatrical spaces. So, uh, so, and that's something that is very personal to me because we've been a part of that now for about a year and a half and growing that work throughout our community. So what we wanted to do in several of these organizations that are that are representative of this work, all in different perspectives, is to make sure that different voices uh, from these respective groups were heard, uh, just, just to basically share the autonomy of, of under the guise of if you're going to have equity and promote equity, you want to also have equity in the representation of who these organizations are. So to so to not make it so that only one person represents or speaks for all of these organizations to select people that hey to just bring a different perspective. So uh, I know from IDEA, we're going to have Michelle Polkapak and uh, Amber Bradshaw. Michelle Polkapak uh, represents South by Southeast and Amber Bradshaw represents working title playwrights. And so it just shows kind of the reach of our organizations into the community and to have us all kind of culminate together for this conversation on racial justice, I think will be truly powerful. I must say that in recent months, we have heard the word accountability mentioned a great deal. And congratulations to you at the Alliance on what you are doing to ignite dialogue and civic participation around these issues affecting black lives, especially in Atlanta and the South. Rita Kumpelmacher, Davier Snipes, thank you very much for joining us and congratulations again on this series. Thank you so much, pleasure. It's a pleasure. Rita Kumpelmacher, Audience Development and Community Engagement Manager for the Alliance Theater, and Davier Snipes, the Alliance Director of Diversity, Equity, and Engagement. The next conversation in the Hands Up series will be October 15th. Tickets are free, but do require an RSVP. More information will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Oliver Jeffers is a brilliant creator of children's picture books with many awards to his credit. We last spoke in 2017 after the release of Here We Are, written as a gift to his son. Now, Jeffers has another child and a new book called What We'll Build. He is with us via Zoom. Oliver Jeffers, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you very much, Lois. It's good to be back, sort of. <laughs> yes, virtually indeed. How rare that a newborn would receive such a gift as these storybooks. Before Here We Are was published, I believe you had written 14 books and collaborated on four more. 
How does being a parent inform your work? <laughs> well, the, I th- that sounds about right. I've never actually counted them all up. Being a parent, I knew that I was making Here We Are before I told really the general public that it was happening. And after our son was born, it was a question that was quite common, which is, is this going to change the way in which you make books? And the answer was quite obviously yes, but not in the obvious way that people expected. And that's because the book that that followed Here We Are was my first ever nonfiction book. Uh, it was not a story at all. And with what we'll build, it's my second non sort of straightforward narrative book. It's it's a poem, really. It's, it's not a story. So quite directly, the answer is that having these these kids is, has massively changed the way in which I've made books. But that doesn't mean to say the rest of my books are going to be abstract or nonfiction. Uh, and, and I dare say that now that I'm reading more books than I have, more picture books than I have ever before, because I'm reading them to them, there will be an impact on the type of story that I might tell in the future. But I, it's too early to say, because ever since they've both been born, I've been working on, on these books for them. Your first book was How to Catch a Star. And here we are, is about living on Earth from another perspective, the sweet guide to life and the cosmos for your son. Now you have a baby daughter. Congratulations. How old is she? She is now two and a half. Oh, she's not a baby anymore. She's a big girl. Uh, As she likes to say. (laughs) Yes. Has she told you yet that big girls don't take naps? Uh, Not in so many words, but she says big girls go to school because her brother started going to school, so she wants to go too. Oh, yes, it's all quite a different landscape for them now. Well, what hopes do you express for your daughter in what we'll build? Well, the hopes that I express for my daughter in what we'll build are, well, they're they're abstract hopes. They're uh, non-specific ones that aren't aren't practical or realistic. We're not actually going to build a road up to the moon, or we're not going to build a, a ship from scratch either. But it's so much of it is we'll build some love to set aside. Things like that are are, are real, but also vague enough that they can be made specific by anybody who's who's reading this book. And and while yes, the prominent characters in this book are me and my daughter. Really, this book is for and about the loving relationship between any two people and how you navigate an unknown future. Like for example, it's it's much more fun to go out for dinner with someone or to tell someone a joke so you see their reaction because it's a shared experience. And I, for one, always like to verbalize my plans, even if that's just so that somebody else hears them. And, and a big part of this book is that. But really, I think at the start of the book, it, it talks about how it's you're only free to dream and plan for a future when you're not battling to survive a present and, and sort of taking stock and realizing just how uneven the playing field is. And that I hope my daughter, both of my children and myself uh, uh, go some way in, into trying to help even the field. And one thing that I've been contemplating was like that this book, the art for this book was being made in, at, the, at the beginning of that momentum of the Me Too movement and just thinking about raising a daughter in what will hopefully soon no longer be a man's world and just the, the amount of work that needs to be done for that and to for, for, for everything, for the entire field to be evened in, in myriad ways. Yes, immediately you tackle gender norms in the book at the outset, which you talk about 
how your awareness of having a daughter, what it's like to be a little girl in this world. I don't know if I can answer that just yet because we're still sort of realizing that she's not a carbon copy of our son, that they're their own little different people. So even, even that is not about gender recognition so much as two different people recognitions that they that my daughter likes to do things in a different way from my son and that might be nothing to do with gender that might be just to do with first child second child so there's we're figuring out so 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 much but i'm sure as she gets older and and uh, the the world is thrust upon her there's going to be all sorts of lessons that that we and she needs to learn and and things that that we can help other people learn so we're at the, the very beginning of what we hope is a is a long but steady path. But early on, the first pages of the book, the illustrations are of tools. While certainly we know women are gifted as architects, there are many builders, contractors. I think you were saying something at the outset about everything being open to her to girls. Yeah, and I, I, you know what, initially that actually came quite subconsciously. As soon as it was there prevalent in the book, it was like, yes, that is what this is doing. But the the reason that there is the tool and the toolbox in there is that we were moving apartments when she was only about a year old or slightly less. And, and uh, I was coming up with the final touches on the, the poem that is in this book and the way in which it was gonna look. And I have a red toolbox that looks like that. And every time I would open it, she would be over like a flash and pulling things out and just really intrigued by this, by all of these objects. And so it wasn't with with a conscious decision, I thought, I'm going to upset gender norms. It was just like, a, this is a book about her and her right now. And she just really loved these tools and that objects. And I think I probably thought, you know, that, that it's supposed to be boys love tools. And I just thought, well, why burden her with that without realizing kind of the, the possible gravity that it might have to a larger audience. Oh, I love the backstory to this story then. So it clearly is metaphor and poetic. When you ask, what shall we build you and I? I'll build your future and you'll build mine. I know that no one could have anticipated when you wrote either book that we would be facing a pandemic. How have you tried to explain to your children what life must be during COVID-19 to these very sweet young minds? My daughter doesn't really get it, the whole thing yet. It's just, we're lucky that she enjoys washing her hands. She considers that as a treat rather than a punishment. But it is funny that, that you say about this book and, and the, the resonance that it has with, with COVID. And the, the truth is that we try to speak to them as directly and honestly as possible. We, we talk about the disease and why it's important to stay away from people and that we hope it goes away and, and that we have to be safe to keep people who are old or sick safe. Uh, and, and the things that we do have consequences. And, and our son gets it and he's, he's great about it. But I made this book well over a year ago, the final art was was finished July of last year, um, well before any of this started to come. And, and I hadn't really, we, we went traveling with our family and I hadn't really thought about it 
too much. And then, of course, as the, the publication was approaching and I realized that it's a very, very different world. And part of me just thought that maybe this book will sort of fizzle in, into existence and, and then die away because it's it's no longer relevant. It's about a totally different world. And what I didn't quite realize is just how apt it actually is about the right now, about the, the fact that not just new parents with new babies facing an unknown future, but everybody, every single person out there is, is facing a very uncertain future. And all we can do effectively at this point is plan and hope. Yeah. In the illustration where you show a fortress to keep our enemies out, and but you don't always lose and you don't always win. This has special resonance now, although certainly not meant to frighten children. But once again, the book is beautifully illustrated and profoundly moving. I look forward to talking with you again, whether the next book is about, is another gift to (laughs) a a Jeffers child or... the energy to go through uh, all that uh, the early stages of development again but (laughs) there will be more books for sure author and illustrator oliver jeffers his new children's book what we'll build is available now you've been listening to city lights our daily exploration of atlanta arts and cultural life Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Cranston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden are City Lights producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Have a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.